We are here today to continue on uh, 40 years and now one week, right? We're into the, the first week of our next year, and we want to continue on and keep growing uh, for the next 40 years and see God's faithfulness and more than that, the fruitfulness of, of God's ministry and the Holy Spirit's ministry in and through our community, that the legacy of At Thy Word and Life Center Cornwall will just continue to grow. And we'll be able to look back and we'll see all the branches and offshoots of what God has done in people's lives and through people's lives, whether they're attending here or whether they've gone on to serve and grow and develop the kingdom of God in other ways. We want to continue to be equipping and releasing people for the work of God's ministry. And so when we look at what God's ministry is and we, we try to wrestle with it, we've been looking in our series, uh, more like Jesus this year, we've been looking to live and, and look and now love more like Jesus. And recently we've been looking like, at that, like how to love more like Jesus. And we haven't tackled it in one head-on straight way of like, this is what it looks like to love like Jesus. Instead, we've looked at Old Testament characters and New Testament characters. We've looked at situations where that love gets challenged, where that love has to like persevere through pain and, and pray through the, that, that pain. We've looked at how uh, love needs to recognize the situation that it's in and make sure it's in a position, the right position, the right alignment to hear from God and to be with God. When we looked at David and how he caught himself out of alignment. Love is so many different aspects of our lives. And we can easily say, oh, this is what it looks like to, we can just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and say, this is the love chapter. Let's do this, you know, and we'll be fine, right? Or, or look at Galatians and love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't envy and doesn't boast and all these things. And it's easy to say that, isn't it? It's easy to say, this is what love is and what love isn't. And why don't we just do that? But here we are confronting our prejudices, our alignments with God when we are aligned with him, when we're not aligned with him. We're posturing ourselves to hear from God, to find out that love is the better way. We've, we've used a quote from uh, a pastor at Meeting House, a teaching pastor at Meeting House, Bruxy Cavey, who has said this, whatever it is that anger and outreach are helping you accomplish, Love will do a better job, Amen. right? And we're trying to figure out how do we allow love to do a better job because we constantly find ourselves not in love and not operating in love and not using love as our better way to do things. And here's the thing, right? Right from the very beginning of creation, since our creation, choice has been a part of it. We get to choose how we want to respond. We get to choose in situations, in relationships, how we are going to respond in love or in other ways. And since creation, right, it's been a part of our way. Creation, it was birthed out of love. And it made me think, so how come we can't follow the lines of that famous Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, where they say, it's easy all you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. If it was that easy, why are we in this mess of a world that we're in if it was easy? 
I, that song, every time I hear it, they go like, it's easy, love is all you need. I'm like, really? Really? Yes, it's true, love is all we need, but is it really that easy? Is it that easy? I don't think so. It's, it's so much tougher than just singing the lines to a song and, and uh, thinking that everything's going to be okay. There's something that jams up our lives that doesn't allow for the lyrics of that song um, that we easily sing to be applied uh, when the world seems to lack love. When the world is deep in division and betrayal and brokenness and we, we're trying to figure out how to deal with it and the anger and the spite and the hurt that we're going through, the sickness and the pain. In a word, when we're dealing with the consequences of our sin. Love is all we need, but love is still so hard. Because as Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And the message today we're talking about is called sin in the camp. And when I was thinking about it and, and trying to prepare for today's message, I'm like, sin in the camp. Ooh, that's a that's a doozy of a topic to talk about in church. We're like, okay, people, today we're going to talk about sin in the camp. Because immediately we start thinking about this is our camp and then going, uh-oh, he's up there and that becomes a bully pulpit because he can start pointing things out or saying things that are, you know, the sin that's in the camp and and things like that. And it's it's a tough message to want to get ready to prepare for people. But here's the thing. We want to look at how we can love more like Jesus. And in order to do that, we have to allow the love of Jesus to be so infused into who we are and so a part of who we are. And the only thing that can stop that is the sin that rests inside of us. The sin that we don't allow to be confessed and brought out and dealt with. That's what keeps our hearts from being wholly given to him. And there's this pattern and a progression to sin um, that, that gets us, right? It, it keeps us falling short of God's perfect glory. And it's this iniquity, which is when we blend the truth to suit what we want to be true. We blend things so that it, it fits our perspective instead of God's perspective, which leads us to transgress, which is where we trespass against one another for our own purposes, our pleasure, or, pers or even just to prove a point where we'll, we'll go against somebody else's point of view or, or step on somebody else in order to feel good about ourselves. There's this pattern, there's this progression, and it erodes our ability to simply live in love. And it doesn't just affect those we dislike. It doesn't just affect those we uh, maybe oppose or have something against. It affects our family. It affects our friends. It affects our, our loved ones, those that we would hold close. That sin, that transgression, that, that iniquity inside of us affects even those closest to us. And to look at this, I want to I jump back to about 1400 B.C., and Israel had this famous battle that they had just gone through. And some of you may be familiar with it. It was the Battle of Jericho, right? Where they, they marched around the city of Jericho in order to see the walls collapse on Jericho. It was an impossible victory that God made possible. 
The way the ramparts were built in the city of Jericho, it was like there was, there was this, uh, a wall that led up to, uh, like an embankment that led up to a wall, and then there would have been another green space that led up to another wall. And so when you were on the outside looking in, it looked like one continuous wall that would have been, you know, 50, 60 feet high that would have been impenetrable. Right? And so they're walking around this, and how do, how do they, they take this city that has a well inside of it that can give all the inhabitants of the city all the water they need, where they've, they've excavated the, the area and found that after the city was destroyed, there was giant vats of grain and food that were still untouched when the city was destroyed. So they had more than enough food to last a siege, and yet they have this improbable, impossible victory by the hand of God. And what happens is, uh, is this. After they had this impossible victory, this improbable victory, by the hand of God, by walking around the city and then just seeing the walls collapse in on the city, God made it clear, right, that because there is a pattern and a progression, a progression to sin, no one was to take any of the devoted things within that city. Now, some of those things in the city were devoted to destruction. And some of the things in the city were devoted to God. Everything that wasn't of the, uh, um, like your, your fine, precious jewels and, and things like gold and silver, all those things were designated to God, who was the victor in that battle. The people did nothing but march around the city and make it a loud noise. God did the victory. And so he got the spoils of that victory, and everything else was devoted to destruction. In, Drew, in Joshua 6.18, we read this. Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring, bring trouble upon it. These things that have been devoted for destruction because of the sin of Jericho. And so God had set this up saying, listen, this city, what's happening here, don't touch any of it. None of it's yours. There's no spoils for victory here for you. Because if you do take any of them, you're devoted for destruction because that's what I have planned for this city. But, but, Achan, Achan sins. In disobedience, he takes some of the devoted things and he buries them under his tent. Now, no one knows. No one saw him do it, but God knows and God sees. In Joshua 7.1, we read this. But the people of Israel spoke, broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The devoted things for destruction and for God had been messed with. What God had made clear to them, Achan, thinking that it wasn't going to hurt anybody, had brought that upon the people. See, the first thing, that the, lie of, the first lie of the enemy is that sin can be measured in size. That sin can be measured in size. That Achan was thinking this was something small just for him. That it didn't have an effect on everybody. The second lie of the enemy is that sin can be hidden. Achan hid it under his tent. The next lie is that the, of the enemy is that sin stays in one place. 
This is only this is only something that Aiken is dealing with. It doesn't affect anyone else anywhere else. And the final lie of the enemy is this: is that the personal sin does not become others' pain. A personal sin does not become others' pain. But know this: sin always roots in either outright lies or half truths, which are the same as whole lies. Sin will never, never be couched in truth because a half-truth is just as good as a whole lie. There is no right way to do a wrong thing. No matter what Aiken's motivation was, maybe, maybe he, he was, wasn't as well off as he, he should be or could be for his family and he was looking to establish something for his family and the generations to come and he was trying to do a good thing, take care of his family as they were about to enter the promised land. Maybe he was trying to do a good thing, but he was doing it a wrong way. The people of Israel, after this battle of Jericho where they had had this convincing victory at the hand of God, they come up against this tiny city called Ai. And they spy out the land, right? And they see that it is so small and so insignificant that they say, to, they say to Joshua, Joshua, we don't need to send up the whole army to go take out this next little town. It is so small. It is just but a speck of a town, especially compared to Jericho that we've just laid waste to. And so Joshua sends about 3,000 men to this small, little, this small little town or village to take it out. They didn't pray. They didn't inquire of God. Uh, fresh off this victory of Jericho, this small town is nothing. But look what happens in Joshua 7, verse 5. The men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people, this is the, the 3,000 men that went up to fight, melted and became as water. They thought, wow, we went and took out Jericho. We can go and take out this little town. This is going to be no problem at all. And yet they were defeated. And they ran before because this victory that they thought was so secure and so sure uh, was not happening. And Joshua was trying to figure out what's going on. He tears his clothes and he cries out to God going, what, what is going on? I thought we were entering this promised land. You are our God and you're going before us and you're going to provide victory for us as we, we do this. And he cries out to God and God responds to him in verses 10 to 11. He says this, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? There's a side note here. I find it very interesting that God expected Joshua just to know what the problem was. You know, why, what, what is your issue here? I wish that I had that, that, that level of insight all the time where I just knew what was going wrong in order to deal with it. But often I find myself just like Joshua. Maybe you do too, going, I don't know what is going on. And God seems like, why, why are you having this problem? It should be pretty straightforward for you. But anyways, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. And they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. Remember, sin isn't measured in size because sin can't be hidden forever. Sin, like a virus, never stays in one place. And sin in one always becomes pain. 
in others. Now, because this is the Old Testament, when we read through the account of the Old Testament, it can often be difficult to understand why God deals with things the way he does. Because as, as this unfolds, as, as God reveals what's going on in the, the people of Israel, it plays out that they, they look to discover who has brought this sin on the people of Israel. And they use what God was, had given them at the time to figure things out. They started drawing lots. And as they drew lots, it came to a certain one of the tribes of Israel. And then it came to one of the families, one of the clans. And then it came to one of the families within those clans. And then it came down all the way to Achan. Right? Achan had many times within this scenario to say, it was me. I did it. But he doesn't. Instead, he lets this whole process play out where Joshua whittles it down from 12 tribes, then down, down, down into clans of families within one tribe, and then all the way down to Achan and his family. And then when Achan has to stand before Joshua, and, and Joshua says, it's, it's you that God has pointed out that you've brought sin into the camp, we find this in verses 20 to 21. And then Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 20 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan sins by coveting, stealing, and lying. He doesn't confess. He's caught. And by the time he's caught, what has it done? It's caused the death of 36 men. Women have lost their spouses. Kids have lost their fathers. People have lost their friends. God, though, renders justice as Achan and his entire family lose their lives. God he is the God of second chances. And in Joshua 8, once that sin has been atoned for, they do achieve the victory over that small town, Ai, on their way to the promised land. But did you see a pattern in the sin? It's not a big deal. No one will find out. I can just keep it hidden for my pleasure. But then, innocent are injured. What starts is just stealing, a harmless crime. Who's, who did we hurt? The city of Jericho has been destroyed. Who am I taking from that didn't deserve to be taken from? Why, why this should be a quote-unquote victimless crime in that, in that circumstance, but it progresses to injustice as people die who don't deserve to die. Joshua's name in all this if you're familiar with what his name means in Hebrew, it means Yahweh is salvation. And so ruling the people at this time, the person who's leading them, his name means Yahweh is salvation. And Joshua is going to lead the people of Israel to the promised land. But under the law, this sin must be atoned for. Going against God's word must be accounted for. And it may seem brutal to us that stealing some, some garments of clothing and some silver and gold 
would need to be paid for by the death of Achan and his whole family. It may seem brutal to us, but when you think of it, when sin isn't atoned for in our culture, what do we call it? Injustice, corruption, toxic environments. Sin has this devastating effect in our culture, in our lives. Now, God is good. He is kind. He is wise. He is loving. But he is also righteous. He is also holy. God hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And nor has sin, iniquity, or trespass. The same things that keep us from loving now were the same things that keep them from loving then. The same things that bring space in between us today are the same things that brought space in between them. Not long before this, I, I don't know exactly how short of a time would have been, but not very long at all, as they were about to enter the promised land and they were, they were, they were crossing the river with Moses, Moses had said to two of the tribes saying, we want you to come with us and help us take out all the land of Israel. Because they had found some really nice pasture land that was just on the other side of the river. And they wanted to stay there. And he said, no, you got to come with us and help us claim the whole promised land. And he says this to them. He says, but if you do not do so, if you do not come with us and help us secure victory, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And then he says this, and be sure your sin will find you out. Now, he wasn't saying this to be like, hey, you know what? Guess what? If you don't come with us, you know, be sure your sin's going to find you out. You're going to get exposed. It would have been obvious that they were exposed. When there's 10 tribes showing up for battle instead of 12 tribes, everybody would have known that they weren't there, that they weren't present. That exposed wasn't about them like it being known. It was about coming out from their hearts. It was about your sin uh, being found in you and paying the price of that. See, the nature of sin is like this. Whether or not others discover or expose your sin, your sin will discover you. You cannot run from the consequences of your sin. Sin carries within itself the power to pay you back. Think of your life, your family, the stories we hear in the news today. Can we not see that an identical pattern that just keeps repeating itself, this progression in our lives played out day in and day out, where those lies that the enemy tells us about our sin plays? It's not that big of a deal. It's just, it's just something small for me. It's not going to hurt anybody else. We see that play out over and over again. We may call ourselves progressive, but it sure seems to do the exact same thing as people thousands of years ago. Jesus, though, is our better Joshua. While Joshua's name meant Yeshua or Yahweh is salvation, Jesus was our salvation and is our salvation. What has changed for us is our covenant with God. What Joshua could only expose and penalize, Jesus alone can carry for us. And as we make our way to Easter, let me set the scene at the table of the Last Supper and jump into the New Testament. Sitting there, about to eat this meal, 
Judas sat there ready to betray Jesus because in secret, he had taken 30 pieces of silver. And like the story of Achan, none of the other disciples knew what was happening. In the ministry of Jesus, Judas oversaw the treasury. And so Jesus could have possibly hidden the money right in plain sight. He didn't even need to bury it anywhere in order to get away with what he was doing. But Jesus knows what Judas has done. And in love, he still washes the feet of Judas. But listen to what happens in John 13. Jesus said to him, The one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. Be sure your sins will find you out. What was in the heart of Judas was discovered in him, became known. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. But Jesus, because he's our better Joshua, because sin must be atoned for, right? Yet unlike Joshua exposing Achan, Jesus becomes the Lamb of God to take away and atone for the sin of the world. And Paul would later say this. He said this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see these two positions in the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they were dealt with. We see Achan and the sin that then encroached in his heart and the sin that was in the camp there. And then we see Jesus and the sin that was in the camp of his disciples and how Jesus dealt differently with it. How even in the midst of the betrayal that Judas had for him, Jesus washed his feet. Jesus loved him and served him enough to do that. That Jesus would take the sin, our sin, and he would become that sin so we could have the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus has done for us, for our sin, for all sin. And what was his motive? Love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In John uh, 23, 21, whoever does, does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And in 1 John 1, 9, we see if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God isn't trying to condemn us for our sins, but to convict us of our sins. We condemn ourselves when we reject God's provision for sin through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, on the cross. His conviction is to convince us to bring our sin to him to deal with. It's the enemy that is looking to condemn you, to persuade you, to bury it, to hide it, to justify it, or even to embrace it. So how is this pattern of sin, this progression of sin broken? 
because of what Jesus has done, it's broken. But what's our part to play in that? It's this. It's confession. Confession. That's our role to play. Confession in the Greek is this word. It's homologio. Homologio. That's the Greek word for confession. And from, it comes from two words in the Greek. Homu, which means together. Persons assembled together. And then logos, right? A word, what is declared, which would come to mean, uh, be used to describe who God is. And these two words, when put together to make uh, homologio, when it, when it creates that word, it means this, to say the same thing as another, to concede, to confess, to declare, to admit or declare oneself guilty of what it, one is con- accused of, to profess, to declare openly or to speak out freely, to profess oneself the worshiper of one, to praise and to celebrate. That is what that word means. And I love that first definition. To say the same thing as another. When we confess, we say the same things as God. I love that. And when we confess, we say the same things as God. We speak out loud what God knows and reveals in us. And whether that confession that we speak of with God is of who God is or of who we are and what we've done. It's a confession. Whether it is agreeing to a admission of our guilt or a declaration of his saving grace, we confess before God and man. I love that. To say the same thing as another. To say the same thing as God. For God to tell me who he is and for me to confess who he is in my life. That's a beautiful thing. And it's a humbling thing for God also to lovingly convict me of my sin. To say, Jeff, this is where you're erring. This is where you're not allowing love to lead a better way. This is where you're allowing your brokenness to to, uh, bring offense to either God or or to to you or to others. When When God reveals to me the nature of my sin and I speak that out and I confess that, And I agree with God as to where my position before him stands. It's an amazing thing. Because it brings me back to the reality of who God is in my life and who I am. And my reliance on, again, Jesus to be my Savior. Jesus to carry my sin and pay the price for my sin so that I can then claim the righteousness of God. Confess our sin. Come to the light. The Holy Spirit reveals while the enemy keeps sin concealed. Now confession, coming to the light, it sets us free. When I agree with God as far as who I am and where I stand before him, it sets me free. Not necessarily from the consequences of my sin, but from the ultimate destruction that sin will cause. Because sin only leads to one destination, death. Moses is warning to the the tribes of Israel where he said, be sure your sins will find you out. And and if you grew up with uh, faith-believing parents, you may have heard that statement from a mother or a father wagging their finger at you. Be sure your sins will find you out. 
But it's echoed by Paul in the New Testament where he says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. What does that mean? How do we mock God with our sin? When we try to conceal it, when we try to hide it, when we try to think that it doesn't affect anybody but ourselves, when it's just a small thing that doesn't really have any consequences, we mock God because he knows all, he sees all. He asks us to say and confess in agreement with him who he is and who we are. We mock him when we let, uh, when, when it, like it says, a man reaps what he sows. For whoever sows to please their flesh, like Achan did, from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. We want to sow in the Spirit. We want to reap what the Spirit has for us. We want to walk in alignment with who God is. We want to confess who God is and who we are before God and man. The sowing progression of sin looks like this, like we see in James 1.15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this sin in the camp in our lives? How do we deal with the moments where we're like aching and we, we, we do something that we think is only going to affect us and we use wrong motives to do something maybe that we think is, is the right way, but we, we choose to do it in, in uh, unrighteous ways. How do we do with, deal with this? As we look to, mo- look to move forward as both individuals and as a part of the body of Christ, he calls us to deal with the sin in the camp. He calls us to deal with the sin in our lives. Now, 100%, 100%, we trust that our sin is covered by the cross. Our sin is covered by the cross. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying today, that there's something more you need to do. There's something you need to achieve or work towards in order to allow uh, God's righteousness and forgiveness to be given you. The cross covers it all. But 100%, we also look to root out any hold that sin could have in our lives. Because like Achan, buried sin where we think it will cause no one harm. That's just not true. It's just not true. We can't live like Achan thinking, well, I'll just, you know, sort it out with God, you know, like, you know, I'll just say, God, you know, you forgive all you know, you know what I did, so I'm sorry. We can't just leave it at this, this you, you got to forgive me because, because of what you did on the cross. You're forced to forgive me for all the things that I do bad, God. So, you know, I can do a bunch of bad things and then say, you got to forgive me now. We can't live in that type of mentality. And, and you may be thinking, well, I don't do that. I don't, I don't do get away with things or, or try and do things and, and just trust that God has to forgive me. I challenge myself on that all the time, though. Because how many times do I allow my emotions to dictate how I'm going to respond in a situation? Where love calls me to act patiently and kindly. Love asks me to be gentle. And I choose a harsh reply. I choose to be judgmental. 
How many times do I choose in that moment to be like, I'm selfishly choosing to do what I want in this moment when I know that God and love have a better way? Why do I do that? Because I know that I can turn to God and God loves me. And I abuse his grace like that. And so what does God want us to do? Root out the sin in the camp. And it's not for me to root out the sin in your life, for me to be like Joshua and be like, all right, there's sin in the camp. We're going to start drawing lots and we're going to see which one of you has got some sin that needs to be dealt with before we can move together. We each individually before Jesus root that sin out in our lives. And yet at some point it is going to come that we need to deal with it together, that we need each other to work this out. We confess our sin to God, our Savior. We confess to Him because He's the only one that can bear the weight of that sin, can bear the eternal consequences of our sin. We confess sin which is hidden so that a season of healing for ourselves and others can be realized. We, can, we confess sin to one another to remove its power in the community. We confess our sin one to another to reveal the grace of God in our community. To restore relationships in our community. And to rest in the righteousness of God and not of our own righteousness that is like filthy rags. So why do we confess to one another? Why do we, we come to each other and say, this is where my brokenness has led me, and I need to confess before you? Because like I said, how that gets lived out in our community describes for the world around us what the kingdom of God looks like. Where the power of sin that leads to death has no hold. But if we as a community cannot live in that love and live in that forgiveness and live in that confession, then we allow the power of sin to maintain its hold on our lives. And so we live a different way, don't we? We're asked to choose a better way that whatever hate and anger and bitterness is trying to accomplish in our lives, love will do a better job. Forgiveness will do a better job job. Instead of holding offense against one another, we confess to each other and we live this out in love together so that love can show a better way. That's why we confess. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So we confess one to another. We confess so that we can say the same things that God says about us. We confess so we can do the same things that God says we should do. Our faith lived out with our works. That is why we confess the sin in the camp. That is why we hold each other in that place. That is why we offer each other that grace that God gives us to say, brother, sister, I am with you. 
I hear your confession. I'm praying with you, and we're moving beyond it. This offense is not going to bring that destruction to the camp. Why? Because we will not let it have root in our community. We will not let sin in our community destroy us because we're going to bring it to God. We're going to leave it at the cross. We're going to not let it bring separation between us as a community and between us and God. We're living a better way. We're living by love. We're allowing the kingdom of God to be present here on earth. So we confess. Let's pray today. God, our hearts desire to confess before you, to say the same things that you're saying. God, my heart's cry is that when I open my mouth, I say what you say, that I say your truth, I speak your truth in your life when I confess with my mouth. And when I confess with my actions, my actions represent the truth that is in my life. You, Jesus. And God, we come to you this morning and we confess that you are God. We confess that you are the saving God, the one true God that takes away the iniquity and sin of the world. That anyone who will call on your name will be saved. And so God, we call on your name. We call on your name and we confess. God, we confess the times where we choose to not do things by your word or by your way. And we do not let love lead us in a better way. We do not let love do a better job. God, we confess it to you, God. But also, we look to lean into confessing to each other and to holding each other up in that God so that the strength of our community is found in our love for one another and our love is found in our acceptance of each other in the midst of our brokenness. So God, may we be a community that lives that confessional faith that lives a faith that professes who you are and who we are as your children. God, may your holiness, may your righteousness convict us of our sin and lead us to confess it before it finds us out. God, we just pray for your holy presence to lead us in that. God, we thank you that you are so quick to forgive and that your love always leads and your love always does a better job and your love has done a finished work on the cross for us. We thank you for this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I was reading uh, a the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And one of the things that he was a part of uh, during his life in Germany was a part of what they called the Confessing Church. And it was a church that decided it wanted to change the way that they were, they were living based off of the, 
the standard church that was in Germany at the time that was kind of going along with the way of the Nazis. And they, they called what they had the Confession Church. And it, it just brought, me, brought back to mind what we were talking about today, about the idea of confessing. Because the whole premise of what he was trying to do was to say, listen, all we want to do is live by the gospel of Jesus, who he is, and what he's called us to be, and that and that alone. It reminds me of Paul saying, when Paul said, I came to you with not wise or eloquent words, but this, to preach Christ in Christ crucified. That what we live by, walk with, and stand in is only our confession of who God is and who we are. And that is it. So I pray today that you can walk that out the same way, that we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we walk in that, and we walk humbly together to see what God has for us. Pastor Ingrid. Mm -hmm.